How is everybody? Good. I asked that at the nine, and there was like two people over here, and everyone else was just silent, staring at me. Glad you guys are here. Um, we've been working through the book of Ecclesiastes, and if you haven't been here, we're actually wrapping it up today. I was telling them last night at the Saturday services, whenever we get done with the book of the Bible, it's kind of this bittersweet thing. It feels like a girlfriend's breaking up with you or something, you know, and it's, you have to move on and, and find someone else. It's, uh, what we're going to do, though, is we're going to finish up Ecclesiastes today. We'll run through chapter 12. It's pretty short. Um, I'm going to teach on, on, this is going to sound weird. I know we do this every week, but I'm going to teach on who is the biblical Jesus next week versus kind of what we think about Jesus versus what the Bible says. We'll do Advent. I'm going to do the book of Malachi in three weeks, and that's going to set us up for the book of Matthew, and we'll be in that for a long time. So uh, anyways, um, we'll do that, and that'll be uh, the next uh, couple of months moving into the middle of next year. That's what we'll be doing. But if you haven't been here for this, uh, I, I've said this almost every week, but, but I, I continually just kind of want to bring it up and remind us, there's so many people that talk about how the Old Testament isn't relevant, and a lot of Christians will say that. Well, it's the Old Testament. Listen, every single word that's in that book is there for a reason, and I hope that in the last couple of months, if you've been coming, if you've been with us for the book of Ecclesiastes, I hope you've seen how relevant and powerful some passages in the Old Testament can be. And what makes this book in particular so interesting is because it is so applicable to our lives, right? Even though it was written 3,000 years ago by a guy that was a king and, and one of the most powerful and influential men of his days, everything he says, it sounds like it was written last week and it sounds like it was written to us, right? People come up to me every week and they're like, man, I think you wrote that sermon for me. And I'm like, actually, I wrote it for me. But because uh, I struggle with a lot of this stuff and deal with a lot of this stuff. And it's amazing how relevant it is. Last week, we were in chapter 11, and uh, we simply asked ourselves the question, how's our relationship with God? I think sometimes we, we complicate it too much, and we, we fail just to ask the simple things. Am I really living for Jesus? Do I really have a relationship with him? You know, how, how am I and the big man upstairs? Are we square with each other? Are we doing what we're supposed to be doing as far as our relationship with him? That's what we talked about last week. This week, we're going to continue on, and this is the, the, the final chapter of a book written by a man at the end of his life, and this is a man that had everything, looked back on his life and realized that he did not live his life the way he should have. So here's what we're going to talk about today, and it sounds heavy. It, it is heavy, but we're going to ask ourselves this question, do we really understand that we get one shot at life? There's no second life that we get to live after this and redo it. We, we get this life. And we're going to have to, to answer for this life, and we're going to end up in an eternity with God forever, or we're going to end up in an eternity apart from God based on how we live this life. So do we realize that we get one shot? That's what we're going to talk about a little bit today, okay? Now, you should have got a notes handout at either one of the doors you walked in. Actually, I think we're doing it back here now, too. So there's three ways you can get handouts. Um, has everything I'm going to say in there. Everything should be on the screen. If you have a smartphone, the Experience Community app, if you don't have that yet, I don't know why, right? Um, if you download the Experience Community app, if you click on Service Time, Sermon Notes, it has everything on there, and um, everything should be on the screen. If you have a physical copy of the Bible, we're right after the book of Proverbs. We're in the book of Ecclesiastes, so that's where we're going to be. We're in chapter 12. It's short, quick. We'll get through it pretty fast. And at the end of this, uh, I'm going to do kind of a brief recap over a lot of the questions we've been asking ever since we started Ecclesiastes. So we'll get you out of here about... 2.15 or so. So um, <laughs> just chill. I, I don't even want that, guys. So anyways, uh, but we'll kind of refresh a little bit at the end and ask ourselves some questions, okay? Everyone get their Christmas shopping done? <laughs> That's why we have Amazon, guys. Thank God for Amazon. I know Jeff Bezos created it, but God created him, and so thank God for Amazon, right? It all goes back to God. All right. I'll pray. We'll jump into this lesson today, and, and uh, we'll see where God takes us, okay? Lord Jesus, we love you. God, I thank you for this church. I love this church so much. Father, I pray that you keep your hand on us this morning. Lord, let us pay attention. Lord, let us really meditate and think on the words that the, that, that the Bible is going to say to us today. I pray that what we study today, that it blesses this church and edifies this church. And We pray not only for our church, Lord, but we pray for every church in our city, every church in our county, the churches that we work with in the United States and outside of the United States. 
Pray for the Salvation Army that we're working with this month, God, and all the wonderful things they do for our community. And pray that you bless them. And we just pray that everything we do this morning, God, that it honors you and brings you glory. Lord, we love you. We thank you. And we pray all these things in your son's name, God. In Jesus' name, amen. Chapter 12, I know I did verse one last week, but I'm gonna start in verse one, read a little bit, and we'll break it down, okay? Here we go. Solomon says, so remember your creator in the days of your youth. Before the days of adversity come and the years approach, when you will say, I have no delight in them. Before the sun and the light are darkened and the moon and the stars and the clouds return after the rain. On the day when the guardians of the house tremble and the strong men stoop, the women who grind grain cease because they are few and the ones who watch through the windows see dimly. The doors at the street are shut while the sound of the mill fades. When one rises at the sound of a bird and all the daughters of song grow faint. Now, this is very poetic, okay? And what this first part that I'm reading, and a little bit of the next part, it's poetry about growing older. The last chapter of Ecclesiastes is imagery, poetic imagery, about the aging body. This is a man who is, this is the last piece of work that he's going to contribute to the Bible. He's near the end of his life, which he actually wasn't that old. He was 60 when he died, but he was at the end of his life. And Solomon wanted to remind us that the body and the mind break down. They slow down, they start to give out, and then eventually we, we pass away. Now, if you haven't been here, we have to remember it's so pivotal to Ecclesiastes. Solomon is a man that had it all. He had all the women he could want. He had all the money he could want. He had all the power he could want. He was intelligent. He was influential. He had everything that we are told we're supposed to want, but he didn't have a connection with God. And so at the end of his life, he looked back and he said, I have wasted time. I have not done this the way I should. He reminds us that it is futile, right? To pursue all these things without God in the mix is futile. Now, this phrase where it says the clouds return after the rain, this means that as we grow older, we can fall into depression if we're not careful. Because what a lot of us do is we trust ourselves more than we trust God. And again, you don't have to be a Christian here to understand this. We're all gonna die. We're all gonna age. We're all gonna fail ourselves physically. We're not gonna be able to do the things we used to do and have the same kinds of clarity that we used to have. So again, the problem is, is this body is breaking down. This mind is breaking down. And so he uses this imagery. Look what he says. He says, the guardians of the house begin to tremble. He's talking about hands. And a lot of men in this room who work with their hands, it's very hard for us as we get older. You can't do the things that you used to do with your hands. It's even talking about the guardians of the house that sometimes our hands protect us, right? If someone attacks us, our hands protect us. But now they shake, they're weak. He talks about that even the strongest of men begin to stoop because our bodies aren't what they used to be. This happens with men and women, right? So we can't depend on our physical bodies and our minds. We have to depend on something greater. He says, the women who grind grain cease. Now, I don't know if you've ever thought about your teeth being women who grind grain, but that's what he's referring to. He's talking about that eventually as we get older, we start to lose teeth and our teeth become more sensitive and we can't enjoy the foods we used to. I remember the first time that I bit into caramel and it felt like someone stabbed me and I'm like, what is happening here? I'm getting old, right? My teeth are sensitive. And Solomon, he mentions that, that not only does our, our teeth start to go and our, our dental work, but he talks about how we start to see things more dimly, our eyes start to go, we lose sight. And that's difficult for us. Let me tell you a fun story. The other day, I, I love old cars. That's, old cars are sometimes the only reason why I haven't gone crazy and run off into the woods. So I was under one of my old cars the other day, and, and I forgot to tell my wife what I was doing. And um, I'm pulling the gas tank on this old car. It's a 1960 car, and the gas tank's, you know, as long as I am almost. And I've got the car jacked up, and I didn't tell her I was doing this. And because I'm getting older and my arms hurt now when I do this, I'm under the car lifting this gas tank. I finally get it loose, but my arms are just worn out, my shoulders. So I'm laying down on the concrete and I just rest this gas tank on me. And my arms are like this. <laughs> and my wife walks outside in the garage and there I am under this old car and it looks like it's fallen on me. She's like, my God, are you okay? And I'm like, I'm just resting. I'm just, just old. And I thought, what a great prank to play. 
in the future, right? Invite a neighbor over and there I am, you know, be fun. Good Halloween thing or something. All right. So older people can also become more isolated if they're not careful. Oftentimes as we age, the generation that comes after us can forget about us. And he says the doors of the street are shut, which means if we're not careful as we get older, it's harder to find community. So what we have to do is we have to understand that our ultimate fulfillment must come from God. Now, people in our lives can be a supplement to that fulfillment, but they cannot be our ultimate source of fulfillment. My wife, my children, you guys, you're a supplement to that, but God has to be where I get my community from. God has to be where I get my ultimate source of fulfillment from. Because if we're not careful, if we don't have that, we can grow isolated, we can grow depressed, we can grow into a place where we don't have proper community, okay? He goes on to say, also, they are afraid of heights and dangers on the road. The almond tree blossoms. The grasshopper loses its spring. The caperberry has no effect. For the mere mortal is headed to his eternal home, and mourners will walk around in the street. I think the Polar Express is outside there. Before the silver cord is snapped and the gold bowl is broken, and the jar is shattered at the spring, and the wheel is broken into the well, and the dust returns to the earth as it once was, and the spirit returns to God who gave it. Absolute futility, says the teacher. Everything is futile. Now, when he says that they're also afraid of heights, that doesn't mean that as you get older, you're just afraid of being in higher places. What Solomon is saying is as we get older, we become more and more afraid of getting hurt, right? Getting injured. Uh, when we have an accident when we're older, it takes longer to recover. It takes longer for us to heal. Whenever 20-somethings in this church invite me to play sports, the first thing I always think of is medical bills. You're going to hurt me, right? I don't want to play football with you young guys. I'm just going to get hurt. In Solomon's time, it was also very dangerous for elderly people to travel because they were vulnerable. And when older people would travel and they'd travel alone, they were vulnerable to people, kid, not kidnapping, but robbing them or hurting them or, or doing things to them, right? And getting hurt on the road. So there's dangers of the road as people would get older. He also uses this analogy, tree, uh, analogy of almond trees and grasshoppers. Now, I didn't know anything about almond trees until I studied this chapter, but this is kind of an interesting thing. Almond trees in the United States, they actually blossom in spring and they have pink petals. If you go to the Middle East, where Solomon was from, almond trees blossom in the winter, and they have a white petal. Now, why does that matter? If you know anything about poetry, winter is always symbolic of death or the end of something. So he compares us to almond trees, and if they were in the Middle East, that makes sense. He also talk about, he talks about that grasshoppers lose their spring. That's a reference to sexual desires and passion, and we're not going to go into that because I just don't want to right now. So... And then he talks about the, the silver cord being snapped. And sometimes people may look a little bit too far into these kind of analogies. And some people believe that this is a representation of the spinal cord. And then the gold bowl is the heart. And the wheels are all the different organs. And these things start to shut down and fall apart. What it's more than likely referring to is someone getting water out of a well. Because all throughout the Bible, we equate life and the spirit with water. And we, we equate the Holy Spirit with living water. And so basically, once that cord breaks, there's no longer a way for us to get water. There's no longer a way for us to get life. So that's more than likely what that is talking about. That cord breaking means that life is coming to an end. And he says that we go back to dust. We came from dust. We return to dust. And all this talk of aging reminds us, though, that if we're not very careful, if we have depended on ourselves solely that we can become bitter as time goes on. We can get angry at God. Even though the Bible clearly says that our days are numbered, we're not promised tomorrow, this life is like a smoke that comes and vanishes. We're told very clearly from the Bible that we're not promised longevity in this life. But because we've somehow tried to put off death and we fight aging and we depend on ourselves, we get very bitter when these things break down, but we know they're gonna break down. 
So the focus of this book of the Bible comes back in, right? The thesis comes to be more clear. Life is short, and the pursuit of anything other than God, Solomon says over and over again, not only is it futile, he says it's like chasing the wind. You're never gonna catch it. So you have to pursue God first. Now let me bring some clarity to that and some balance to that. This does not mean that you can't have aspirations. It's okay to have aspirations. It's okay to have dreams. It's okay to have career goals. It's okay to build relationships. It's okay to have adventures and travel. There's nothing wrong with any of those things. But what Solomon is saying is exactly what Jesus said in the Gospel of Matthew, that we need to seek first the kingdom of God. God knows that we have dreams and aspirations and career goals, and we need to feed our family and build relationships. God knows that. But if God is not the center of all the things we do, not only will those things eventually crumble, they will never fulfill us, even if they don't crumble, which I think they will, but even if they don't, we're never going to be fulfilled by careers or relationships or adventures if God is not at the center of that. So Solomon's not telling us to not have dreams or hopes, but God is saying, uh, Solomon is saying, make God the center of those dreams and hopes. Make him the middle of that because all of our contentment and fulfillment begins and ends with a relationship with God. All those other things are good, but God has to be first in our life, okay? Solomon says this, he's talking about himself. He says, in addition to the teacher being a wise man, He constantly taught the people knowledge. He weighed, explored, and arranged many proverbs. The teacher sought to find delightful sayings and write words of truth accurately. The sayings of the wise are like cattle prods, and those from masters of collections are like firmly embedded nails. The sayings are given by one shepherd. But beyond these, my son, be warned. There is no end to the making of many books, and much study wearies the body. When all has been heard, look at how big verse 13 and 14 are. When all has been heard, the conclusion of the matter is this. Fear God and keep his commands, because this is for all of humanity. For God will bring every act to judgment, including every hidden thing, whether good or evil. So Solomon is talking about himself. Now, if you have not been here, Solomon is a fascinating character. This is a man that asked God for wisdom. God gave him wisdom. God gave him, because of his wisdom, gave him riches and influence and power and all these different things. But listen, just because one has wisdom doesn't mean that they always exercise wisdom. Solomon made a lot of bad mistakes. Not only did he struggle with women, right? He had 700 wives, uh, 300 concubines added on to that. Not only was there a lust issue there, but because he married women from foreign countries, not that there's anything wrong with that, but they worshiped other gods. And so he brought paganism into the people of God. He brought idol worship into the pagan of God. Solomon made a lot of poor choices, but... God had given Solomon a gift, not just of knowledge and wisdom. God gave Solomon this this uncanny ability to communicate to people in both an intelligent way and a way that is relevant to their everyday life. Now, here's what we tend to do in Christianity nowadays, and I'm going to make fun of some people. I'm not going to call them out by name, but you'll probably know. We go to two extremes. We either go to the extreme where there's some really good-looking, charismatic leader that, you know, shoots a super soaker into the crowd, and he's like, that's the Holy Spirit, and we're like, oh, look what he said, and I'm like, he didn't say anything, but we have that extreme, right, that's super cool and hip, but they're not really saying anything, and then we have the other extreme of a guy or a woman that has 19 PhDs, and they talk on such a level to where we don't even know how the Bible applies to our life. Now, Solomon wasn't either one of those. He was somewhere in the middle. He was charismatic. He could apply things to the daily life, but he was also very, very intelligent, very, very wise, and he was this great balance of both being able to communicate to the everyday person, but also not dumbing down the word of God 
and what is wise. He did both of those things. He was an amazing communicator. Now, what we are called to do, listen, this is you and I. Now, this book was written roughly 3,000 years ago, the book of Ecclesiastes. What we are called to do is take these ancient paths, right? These things that were written a long time ago, and we can take these and apply them to modern day scenarios. Now, I know that culture and society is dramatically different now than it was in Solomon's age. I understand that, but listen, people have not changed. We still struggle with the same things, right? I know that Solomon wasn't looking at porn, but he was having sex with 700, 700 different women. Still a lust issue, right? I know that he wasn't on Amazon and eBay spending all of his money, but he had more material possessions than anyone else on planet Earth. We've always struggled with apathy and materialism and lust and distraction and greed. People have always struggled with these things. So here's where we drop the ball and we have to be careful. A failure to study history and a failure to study the Bible is the pinnacle of foolishness. Whenever I hear people, you know there's a movement right now in a lot of schools to where we're neglecting huge parts of the 20th century because it's uncomfortable to talk about. Things like the Holocaust. There's a lot of schools that don't want to teach the Holocaust. Guys, that was my grandfather's generation. If we stop talking about things like the Holocaust, there's gonna be another nutcase that's gonna rise up and deceive a nation and kill another six million people. We don't need to act like history never happened. We need to study it so it doesn't repeat itself. That's just intelligence and wisdom. Now, this book, of the, th this book is not only historically relevant and tells us a lot about history, this was inspired by the creator of us that knows us better than we know ourselves. And because we make mistakes, because we struggle, because there are curveballs thrown at us all the time, this book tells us how to live in accordance with God. Why in the world would we not read this book? But the combination of knowing history and biblical history and with the Holy Spirit and the wisdom that this book gives, it can save us from tremendous heartache. The book of Revelation even tells us what's going to happen in the future so that no Christian should be surprised when the next Antichrist comes onto the scene. We shouldn't be shocked by that. We shouldn't be caught off guard. God told us how it's gonna happen, right? So, but if we don't study this book, if we don't read this, if we don't know history, we're gonna go through a lot of suffering. We're gonna make a lot more mistakes. This book also moves us in the right direction and it stabilizes us. Look at what Solomon says here. Solomon says the words of the Bible are like cattle prods. I love this. Now, I've never been a cow, so I don't know, but I'm sure cows do not like it when someone prods them to make them go a different direction. They're probably like, hey, that, that hurts. I don't like this. But a good shepherd, a good farmer, right, knows that if he sees an animal about to go off a cliff, it is better to hurt them a little bit, to move them in the right direction than to let them meet their end, right? The Bible does the same thing for us. The Bible is a cattle prod that when we're moving in the wrong direction, a direction that will eventually kill us, right? Because the devil comes to steal, kill, destroy. That if we're moving in that direction, the word of God pokes us and sometimes we go, ow, I don't like that. And God says to us through his word that sometimes these words correct us, reprove us, and even rebuke us. That's what the Bible says. And we don't like that, and people get offended at God, and they get offended at pastors and churches. How dare you tell me to go a direction, a different direction? I dare tell you, and the Bible dare tells you because you're about to walk off a cliff. And sometimes we need to be poked. Sometimes it hurts. Sometimes it may leave a scar and some bruising but it's better than falling off a cliff, isn't it? It's better than, than, than meeting a, a demise that we shouldn't have to meet. And so the Bible is like a cattle prod. I love that. It also says the Bible is like embedded nails. Now what that's actually talking to is think of a tent. And when you build a tent and you take stakes and you put those stakes firmly in the ground so the tent is, is solid, right? It's good. Now what a good tent does is it protects you from the rain, it shelters you, it gives you sanctuary. So not only does a, the Bible cattle prod us into the right direction, it gives us coverage, it protects us. 
It protects our souls. It protects our minds. It protects our finances. It protects our families. The Bible will even protect our physical bodies to an extent. Whenever people make fun of like the book of Leviticus, right? Now, don't get me wrong, guys. I'm a human too. It's not fun to read all of Leviticus. One of these days I'm going to teach it, man. I, I, I keep threatening you guys with that. One day we're just going to do it. Do an experiment. How, how small can a church get when you do the book of Leviticus all the way through? But even the book of Leviticus, that people are just like, why is this in the Bible? Think about it. Before there were biology textbooks and walk-in clinics because they were exiting through the desert on their way to the promised land, when God said, don't eat meat with blood in it, it's not because God you know, thinks you're awful if you eat a medium rare steak. He knew that if you eat bloody meat in the desert, you're probably going to die. So there were even words of the first five books of the Bible that saved people literally. It saved their lives. The reason why you didn't blend certain materials is because of allergies and because those materials don't hold together well. So don't make things out of those materials. Every single word of this book is there for a reason and they're not wasted. We just have to know the history, the context, and what God is trying to teach us through those things, like embedded nails. So we're to read, we're to study, but we have to stay focused. You know, I didn't mention this at the other three services. But so often we read all kinds of different books, but we fail to go back to the book. Now listen, there's good knowledge in a lot of books. If you ever go into my office, I got books wall to wall, floor to ceiling. A lot of books in my office, literally thousands of books in my office. And there's a ton of great knowledge in those books. But here's where we gotta be careful with outside knowledge out of the Bible. Even though there is truth in other books, let me give you an example. And I'm not trying to make fun of people. In Buddhism, if you read books on Buddhism, Buddhism says to treat people with respect and dignity, and you should do that. That is a truth, and that's God's truth. That belongs to God. Where we have to be careful, though, is when we say, well, all religions say good things, right? That's right. All world religions have truth speckled in them. All that truth belongs to the true God. There is also a lot of lies around that truth. And if we are not anchored to this book, we are going to be deceived by other books. Even the Satanic Temple in Salem, Massachusetts tells you that you're to treat each other with respect. It's the Satanic Church. There is truth peppered in there, but there's a lot of lies peppered in there as well. And without that anchor, we are going to be deceived. We have to be very, very careful. False teachers, philosophies, New Agers have convoluted the truth by mixing it with a lot of lies. But without this anchor, we don't know what's right and we don't know what's wrong. We have to read the Bible. Nothing wrong with all your other books. I think you need to be careful and wise, but you have to go back to this book, okay? You have to go back to that. Now, verse 13 and 14 are huge. Solomon plainly says the conclusion of the matter is this. Look at how black and white and simple this is. At the conclusion of that whole book, at the conclusion of Ecclesiastes, and the conclusion of everything that that book says, at the end of it is this, fear God and keep his commands. Well, that's good for you, it's not good for me. No, 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 it's for all humanity. All humanity to fear God and keep his commands. We tend to overcomplicate life. People ask all the time, what's the meaning? What's the meaning of life? Well, if you're here this morning and you don't know the meaning of life, Congratulations, I'm about to tell you. You are made in the image of God, and the reason why you are sitting in this room, breathing right now with blood going through your veins, is you are designed to live in accordance with the Creator. You are a creation of the Creator. You are the greatest masterpiece ever made, and the artist wants you to be as much like him as possible until he comes back and takes us, and we're gonna be with him forever. That is the meaning of your life. That is the purpose of your life to fear and respect him and to do what he tells us to do. Now, we hate that word fear. And we often say in Christianity, well, that just means respect. Nope, sometimes it literally means fear. And if you're living on the wrong side of God, you should definitely be afraid. That should be a scary thing. When there is a God that created us that can snap the universe into existence and snap it out, which it says he's gonna do in Revelation, there should be a healthy fear of that. Well, that just means respect. Nope. It means more than that. It's a much heavier word than just respect. We should be awestruck by a God that has that much power, right? That should humble us. Okay. 
And the reason that should humble us is this last line. For God will bring every single act under judgment. Maybe one of the most sobering, humbling passages that we've studied in a long time. To think that God is a righteous judge. And that one day, every single one of us will have to stand in front of that righteous judge. And it says, nothing will be hidden, whether good or evil. Listen, let me, let me give some clarity to that. If you have repented of your sins, if you live in a relationship with Jesus Christ and when you make a mistake, you say, God, I'm sorry for that, you don't have to worry. Those things are gone. Do you know the Old Testament says that our sins are cast into the deep sea, right? That's a metaphor. Jacques Cousteau's not down there like, oh, look at all the sin down here. Um, and if you don't know who that is, I'm really sorry. But the Bible says our sins are cast into the deep sea. The Bible says that our sins are as far as the east is from the west. So if we repent for our sins, you don't have to worry about those things. Jesus has blotted those things out. Even he doesn't see them anymore. But if we have lived a selfish existence just for us, nothing escapes the eyes of God. Now, should that scare you? Yeah, it should. If you are living in rebellion to the creator God, yes, that should scare you. Oh my gosh, he's teaching fear. Yes, because the Bible says it. If you are living in rebellion to the creator, that's a very fearful place to be. Now, I'm not gonna leave you on a negative note. We'll eventually get to some positive stuff here in a second, but I, I wanna ask some questions. First, though, I wanna remind you, if you haven't been here, Ecclesiastes is simply this. Ecclesiastes is someone that pursued all the things that the world tells us we should want to pursue. Sex, money, pleasure, power, fame, fortune, right? If Solomon was in this day and age, he'd be an Instagram influencer. Isn't that stupid? Anyways. <laughs> he had achieved everything that people wanted to achieve. And the interesting thing about the book of Ecclesiastes is, is he looked back and he said it wasn't worth it. It didn't fulfill me. It didn't bring me contentment. He said it was like chasing the wind. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm gonna tell you a little bit about me. My greatest fear in life, my second greatest fear is snakes. My first greatest fear in this life is to one day reach a point to where I look backwards and I never made my mark on humanity. It's a great fear of mine. It's a great fear of mine that I would have wasted the time God gave me. I think for Solomon to look back and to have amassed all this stuff but realize that he had wasted his life, that has to be one of the greatest tragedies. But that's what he did. Now, I think Solomon turned it around. I think he repented eventually. But he had wasted so many years. That's a great tragedy. So let's talk about that with you and I. If we're in this room and we realize we get one shot at life, there's no time machines that take us back so we can redo things. We get one shot. So let me ask you right now, today, what is the purpose of your life? Not what should be the purpose. I already told you what the purpose should be. What is the purpose of your life? To become vice president or CEO? Nothing wrong with that, but is, is that all you aspire to be? Is it to, to buy that big house? Is it to achieve this, is it to be the most popular person you know or the most attractive? What is the purpose of your existence? If you're honest with yourself, if you have a hard time answering that, just look at where your time, money, and energy go and that'll tell you. What's your purpose? Is it to glorify God? Is that the first thing you wanna do? Do we pray? Do we read the word of God? Are we committed to this, to Christian community? If we're not committed to Christian community, if we're not committed to praying and reading the word of God, when life happens to us, how do we expect to stand? Do you know it's not a matter of if life's gonna hurt you? Jesus Christ said in this life, there will be suffering. It's going to happen. We're all going to accumulate scars. We're all gonna be taken advantage of. We're all gonna get hurt. When those times come, how will, we, how will we stand? And if we have not created a foundation of prayer and biblical knowledge and having a church home, if we have not created that foundation, we're not gonna stand very well. 
Have we done that? We talked about a couple of months ago that it's not that God isn't present, it's that we're not present. We often talk about finding Jesus like he's hiding somewhere. Jesus isn't hiding somewhere, we're hiding, we're running. It says in the book of James that Jesus knocks on the door of our heart. He's right there. He's right in this room right now. God is always present. We're the ones that are absent. So we asked ourselves, are we present? Are we alive? Are we looking? Are we awake? Are we sober-minded? Do we realize that we don't have forever to make a decision about where we're going to stand? Do we realize, let's take it outside of the context of us and God, do we realize our children are not young forever? Do you realize that, parent? Do you realize when you're doing this, all day long, your kids are growing up over here? Do you realize it? Do you understand that? Do you understand that when you look back on your life, you're not gonna wish that you worked more? You're not gonna wish that you were on your phone more? You're gonna wish that you had more time. Are we present? The Bible says, wake up, O sleeper. Are we awake? Are we awake? Are we here? Are we now? We often say that we don't see God working or that we don't hear God. Is it because we're so distracted that we don't take the time to see God? People often say, well, I've never seen a miracle. I guess you've never looked at your children. I guess you've never looked around. Every time the rain falls from the sky, that's miraculous. Every time you go out and look at the stars and the moon, there's miracles all around us, but we have to intentionally take the time to notice that God is working. But when we're constantly busy, when we're constantly distracted, we don't see that God is moving around us all the time. So we have to intentionally take time to Sabbath, which means we have to take time to slow down, to rest, to look, to think about God to read the word of God, to look around? Do we take the time to see God working around us? Do we take time to balance out this life? We're so busy, aren't we? All the time busy. Now, in our lives, we need to be intentional about scheduling time out. When we're at work, man, work your butt off. Work to the best of your ability. But when you get off, go home and be dad. Go home and be mom. Go home and be husband and wife. Be present. Block off that time to read the word of God. Block off time in your week for relationships, for, for family time, for alone time. Listen, Jesus Christ isn't gonna come down and take your iPhone and be like, let me put these things in your calendar for you. He's not gonna do it. You have to do it. And, and men, I'm just gonna tell you, your wives aren't gonna think you're less sexy if you schedule on your calendar date time. They're just gonna be happy that you did it. So do it. You guys are getting out your phones right now. <laughs> yes. Are we free Thursday? Yes, okay, all right. Block those times off. Be intentional about it. Find balance in our lives. Where do we find our identity? We live in a culture now that finds their identity in everything. Who we have sex with, what color our skin is, how much money we make, how we vote. And that's our identity, right? That's what I, I'm, a, I'm a white Democrat from St. Louis. I'm not really a Democrat, I'm just saying. I'm apolitical, guys. Don't shoot anything at me right now. But that's what I am. I find my identity in that, right? That's what I am. I'm, I'm a white person. Join the other four billion of us, right? But we find our identity in these shallow things and we wonder why we're not fulfilled. Do you know why we're not fulfilled? Because you're not, your identity is not found in those things. The Bible says you're not a Jew or a Greek. You're not slave or free. You're not male or female. We're all one under Christ Jesus, which means you're not made in the image of the Republican Party. You're not made in the image of the color of your skin. You are made in the image of a creator God. Now, some of you are getting angry at me right now because some of you are so wrapped up in worldly things that you have forgotten that those are not the things that give you value. What gives you value is not what you've done or accomplished or what's been done to you. It's not the color of your skin or your gender or your sexual preference. What gives you value is you are made in the image of the artist. 
And we were created to be more like him. And when we find our identity and value in anything else other than Jesus Christ, we're going to be let down. We're going to be disappointed. Do we believe God lifts the cap on our potential? We talked about this just a couple of weeks ago. What does that mean? What that means is, do you honestly believe that even if your marriage is in dire straits, that if both of you would give your lives to Jesus Christ, that God could give you the best marriage possible? Do you still believe that? Do you still believe that if you struggle with hopelessness and depression, do you still believe that God can deliver us of those things? Do you know what I'm sick and tired of? I'm so sick and tired of Christians walking around going, we're just broken, ugly sinners. That's not biblical. Do you know what it says in Romans chapter six that we're no longer slaves to the bondage of sin? Why in the world would you come to a church and identify yourself with a savior that has no ability to change you? It is not biblical for us to walk around as Christians saying that we're broken sinners. We're not. God does not leave us the way he finds us. Do we still believe that? Why would we serve? You know, why, you know why that upsets some of you? Because some of you find your identity in your sin and you find identity in your brokenness. And do you know why so many of us don't want to acknowledge that the Bible says we can be more than overcomers and be freed from the bondage of sin? Because when we're freed from the bondage of sin, it means that we have to live at another level. And we don't want to do that. We don't want to be held accountable. Now, it doesn't mean we're not going to make mistakes. We will make mistakes. But your identity is not broken sinner. You've been redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ, and no one can come into a genuine interaction with Jesus Christ and ever leave the same way. It's impossible. Well, I'm the same as I always was. Then something is wrong because no one comes into a genuine relationship with Christ and remains the same. He changes us. Do you believe that? Do our public and private lives, are they the same? Does what we do in the shadows look the same as what we do in the sunlight? Are we preparing the soil to make something grow? We often shake our fist at God and say, God, why didn't you do something? And God says, you never planted any seeds. God, why don't you speak to me? Corey, you never listen. God, why are my finances always a mess? Because you don't trust me with them. How do we expect things to grow when we've never planted the seed and watered? The Bible says in 1 Corinthians that Paul planted, Apollos watered, but God grew something. Have we planted? Have we watered? Here's the, the, the big question. And again, guys, I'm going to leave you on hope, so I'm not going to leave you on this orange question. I'm going to move on from this, but I, but I have to ask it because I believe it's at the center, it's at the heart of what Solomon was trying to get us to think about. The Bible says that one day Jesus Christ will split the eastern sky and that one day our creator, our maker, will come back and it says that he will judge the living and the dead, all of us. All of us, in the book of Matthew, it says all of us will stand in front of our creator, the righteous judge, Jesus Christ. And it says he will open up books of our lives Right? That's what it says. And every single one of us in this room will have to give an account for what we did with the time we had. Well, God, this happened to me. No, 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 I'm not talking about what those people did to you. Jesus is gonna say, what did you do? What did you do with your time? Well, I was abused as a child. That's why I did the things I did. My Holy Spirit is the comforter, the counselor. I have given you the ability to live above what has been done to you. What have you done with the time you've had? Well, I watched a lot of Netflix, Lord. I never gave. I was never generous. I was busy. Had to work, right? The Bible says that many are going to approach that throne and they're going to say, Lord, but I did a lot of things in your name. I got a tattoo with your name on it. I got a bumper sticker with your name on it. I wore a shirt with your name on it. I even did miraculous things in your name. And it says that Jesus is going to look at him and say, you have to depart from me because we don't have a relationship. If Jesus were to interrupt service right now, 
and say, okay, everyone get in a single file line. What'd you do with the time I gave you? How would you answer that question? Now listen, again, I don't want to leave you on that. Recently, I read John chapters one, two, and three, the gospel of John. Man, John chapter one may be one of the greatest pieces of literature ever written. Starts off with, before all things, there was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was with God. And it goes on, and it was God, and it goes on to tell you that the word became flesh. And that's what we're about to celebrate in a couple of weeks is the word becoming flesh, Jesus Christ, God incarnate. The Greek is homoutheus, which means the, the same substance as God became flesh. It became a baby in a manger that grew up to be a child that was crucified on a cross. And at the end of John chapter one, John says this, because Jesus came, he says, we've received grace upon grace. That regardless of the time we've wasted, regardless of the things that have been done to us, regardless of those dark chambers of our heart that we've hidden for so long, that if we will humble ourselves and if we will accept the fact that God came to earth, willingly died on a cross, and because of Jesus Christ, John says we receive grace upon grace. The first 23 years of my life was a waste. I didn't come to know Jesus until about a month before I turned 23. I'd tried to kill myself three times, and on my third suicide attempt, I gave my life to Christ. 23 wasted years. I had to hurt people. I'd hurt the people I loved the most. I'd done awful things. To this day, people that I haven't seen in years that I've done awful things to, and I wish I could find them, and I wish I could tell them I'm sorry. In the Old Testament, the Bible talks about that there are years that the locust came and destroyed. But the Bible also says that God can restore those years. Grace upon grace upon grace. That there's no corner of our heart that's too dark that if we will just not invite Christ in, that he can't shine the light on those dark corners. Guys, that may hurt. It may be a little humbling. But if we will let him in, it doesn't matter what we've done. It doesn't matter what's been done to us. It doesn't matter the actions we've done in the past. It doesn't matter how bad we have screwed it up. If we will be humble, grace upon grace grace upon grace. This is the good news. This is the news that God loved us so much that he sent his only son that while we were sinners, while we were sinners, while you were cheating, while you were lying, while you were stealing, while you were harboring hatred and racism or whatever was going through your mind, even at your worst, Christ saw it, he knew it, and he came and willingly shed his blood for us. That while Roman soldiers were driving nails in his hands, he looked up to the Father and said, God, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. That is grace stacked upon grace, stacked upon grace. And that if we will just lay ourselves down at the feet of Christ, even all the years wasted, God can somehow rebuild that mess to where we make this jumbled up crap of our lives, but God looks at it and he starts sculpting and mending and putting together. And by the time he's done, he's created this masterpiece and it looks a lot like him. That's you and I, that's us. If we will just admit that we need him. Grace upon grace, grace upon grace. Would you bow your heads with me, please? I don't know if there's anyone else in this room who let the locust eat some years. I want to tell you, if you're in here and you've wasted some time, if you've done evil things, things that you hope no one ever hears about, 
I want to tell you that God sees it, he knows it, and that doesn't need to bother you. It needs to be a testament of how much he loves you, that he still died on the cross, wanting to forgive and help and restore and mend and fix. Grace upon grace. If you're in this room and and you need prayer for anything, there are men and women on both sides of the stage, they'd love to pray with you. Maybe you need to confess something. Maybe you just need to come up and tell someone, look, I've been doing this. Can you pray for me? Please let them pray for you. If you're in this room and you do not have a relationship with God, you don't know what to do, you have questions, up here on my right, your left, Pastor Mike is up here. He would love to talk with you. He'd love to get to know you. If you want to set an appointment or just talk up here and ask questions, he'd love to talk with you. Please don't feel uncomfortable or odd, just... Come up here and talk to him. The last thing is, is we have communion all the way around this room. We take for granted what that bread and that juice represent. Listen, as your heads are bowed and your eyes are closed, that blood and that, 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 I'm sorry, that, that, that juice and that bread that represents the blood and body of Jesus Christ, that reminds us that God sent his only son. He was born, he grew up, And he willingly climbed on a cross because we had done evil. Jesus knew every sin we would commit, and he still did it. That's because he loves us. And today we can say, Father, we're sorry. Forgive us. We can take the body and the blood, and we can remember that we receive grace upon grace upon grace. Lord, I love you so much, God. I thank you, Lord, for this church. God, if there's anyone in this room, Lord, who maybe just wants to spend a couple of minutes taking communion, all the different trays with lamps on them, God, I pray, Lord, that they can go and and just spend a couple of moments just reconnecting with you. If anyone needs prayer, Father, Lord, let them, don't be intimidated or nervous about that, Lord, but let them bind with another brother or sister and call on your name, God. Lord, if anyone has questions, Let them come talk to Mike, God, and Lord, let them start the journey. Father, I I, I love this church. I pray that you protect them, God, my brothers, my sisters, my friends. I pray, God, that we never forget, Lord, how good you are and how dependent we are on you. We love you. We thank you. We pray blessings on everyone in this room, and we give you thanks, Lord, for all you've done. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Love you guys. You're welcome to help yourself. Thank you guys so much.